Right. Well, it's, uh, it's been a while. It's probably been a few weeks. Uh, but we'll be continuing our series in the life of the church. And we've been blessed over the past few months to learn how we can live up to the roles and responsibilities God has given us as members of his church and members of his family. And as we've been taught about the different responsibilities we have to build each other up, I'm sure many of you have been convicted and encouraged to carry out these responsibilities, to forgive better, to serve better, to encourage better, and so on. Um, but tonight's topic um, might cause you to maybe cringe a little bit, uh, maybe get you a little uncomfortable. Um, you see the topic of confrontation, and you're probably not all that excited. Uh, anything else? like bearing each other's burdens, uh, comforting, exhorting, anything else, and you might be like, yeah, I really want to get better at that. But tonight, you might be, hey, this, this just really isn't my thing, or you know, it, it's not you know, my personality to do this. And if you're like me, I try to avoid confrontation in just about every aspect of my life, uh, in my mind, it just makes life a lot easier and a lot more comfortable. And others might object to confrontation, saying it's judgmental or it's unloving or it's legalistic. Uh, but, consider what, but consider this. Um, God has called his people to be holy, right? Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which you were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as God's people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to live in a manner, as Paul says, that's worthy of our calling. And he also says in Colossians 3, he tells us that since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And even though we're saved, the reality is we'll still sin. So what happens when we're not holy, right? So what happens when there's times when we're not living in a manner that's worthy of our calling or when we start practicing the things of the old self, right? What happens when we sometimes do the opposite of what Paul wants us to do in Galatians 5 when we put on the deeds of the flesh and put away the deeds of the spirit? That's why we have Galatians 6, which is going to be one of our texts for tonight. And hopefully by the end of tonight, we'll understand that when we allow our fellow brothers and sisters to continue in sin, we're not helping the church, and we're not helping them. And it's in these times that we need to do what a lot of us probably rather not do, right? And that's to confront them in love. But we don't just confront to confront Right? We confront as part of a process of restoring. And sooner or later, because we sin too, right, there's going to be a time when we're also going to need to be, excuse me, we're also going to be, need to be restored. So we'll be looking at uh, the two texts, uh, two texts that Alex had, has read tonight, that will help us understand what we need to do when we need, and then when we are to engage in confrontation and restoration. Um, so we'll go back to our two passages that have been assigned for us tonight. Um, so we'll look at them separately. Um, so we can divide them. Uh, we'll, we'll divide our time this way. Uh, we'll first look at Proverbs. Uh, we'll first look at Proverbs, and um, we'll divide it this way. 
Um, so if you're taking notes, uh, it's going to be Roman numeral one is wisdom for those in need of confrontation. Um, so that's number one, wisdom for those in need of confrontation. Uh, and for that, we'll look at Proverbs. And then secondly, will be instructions for those providing restoration. So Roman numeral two or two would be instructions for those providing restoration. And that'll be our text in Galatians uh, one through five. And so if you would, uh, go ahead and turn to Proverbs, uh, if you're not already there, Proverbs chapter 27. And although in our passage uh, in Proverbs is just one verse, right, 27 verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, uh, we're going to examine the chapter uh, almost as a whole. It helps give us kind of like a better understanding of why the wounds of a friend are so important. Remember, Proverbs was written by Solomon to one of his sons, probably Rehoboam, uh, providing him guidance on how to live, including wisdom for physical life, wisdom for spiritual life, how to run the kingdom, and how to run his own family. So in Proverbs chapter 27, Solomon continues addressing his son, providing him wisdom on an instruction regarding being watchful over sin and temptation. So we'll be kind of skipping around a little bit to see what's happening uh, because it looks like there's a specific issue that Solomon is addressing. Um, So we'll start at actually verses 7 to 8. So uh, if you look at verses 7 to 8, it reads, A sated man loathes honey, but to a famished man any bitter thing is sweet. Like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders from his home. So here's a warning about temptation. Right? When you're content, it's probably a little harder to be tempted. So when you're full, even the best-tasting foods probably don't taste all that appealing. But when you're discontent or when you're dissatisfied, temptation is going to be stronger. It's like when you're hungry, even something bitter would taste good. And that's probably something that you know, we can understand. right? You probably or maybe you have or have not, right? But you've probably eaten enough or maybe more than enough to the point where you probably feel a little gross, right? I mean, if you've been to, say, a buffet, right? And all you can eat buffet, right? You eat, and then you eat, and then you eat. But, you know, you have dignity, so you take a break, right? And then you eat, and then you eat. And then, to make sure you get your money's worth, you just eat a little more. And then when it's over, you're so full, right, you feel like you're going to throw up. It's happened before. Probably happened before. It's okay, right? But do you feel like eating after that? Right? Probably not, right? Even after that, if someone were to put I don't know, whatever your favorite food is, but if they put like a nice big steak right in front of you, right, it's, it's not going to happen, right? It, it, it just doesn't, it just, you just don't want it. But you've probably been on the other side too when you're really hungry, right? Like starving, right? It doesn't matter what it is, you're going to be willing to eat it and it'll still taste good, right? If you ever hear me say, oh man, that salad was so good, or oh, quinoa, Wow, that tasted great. See, 
If, if, there, if you ever hear me say that, that's probably because I haven't eaten. I probably haven't eaten in days, okay? Well, this is what happens when you're discontent, right? Whatever it is that you feel like you should be getting that you're not getting, you might even be willing to sin to get what you want. So what's the temptation that Solomon is warning us about or warning his son about that would lead, as it said in our, uh, that, is, that it says in verse 8, that would lead a man to wander from his home? Like, what would lead a man to wander from his home? Right? You would probably guess, but if we move a few verses down, it becomes a little more clear. Uh, if you look at verse 13, it says, Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger, an adulterous woman will hold him in pledge. Right? It sounds like he's warning his son about the sin of adultery. Right? Back in verse 8, the, unsati- the unsatisfied man, like a is willing, like a bird, to leave his own home to get what he wants. And where is he going? It looks like he's going to an adulterous woman, right? He's giving his garment as a pledge, right? That's what they did back then, right? It's kind of like a guarantee, right? You give someone your coat for them to hold on to, and that just means that you'll be coming back, right? Because you need to come back for your coat. So what, so when, does, so when someone does that, you know that they're serious, right? And why is he doing it? What would lead a man to want to leave his home and commit adultery? Uh, move down a few verses, uh, and it gives us another clue. Right? In, verses, uh, in verse 15, it says, The constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. It sounds like he's living or he's married to a contentious woman. Right? So what does living with a contentious woman look like, you might ask? I will tell you, I don't know. Okay. Huh? Huh? Right. And you ask, ask any other married guy here, and they will, should tell you the same thing. Okay. But now we've got a pretty good picture of what might be going on here, right? So you can picture it. Right. We've got a man who's living with a contentious wife. Right. He's probably not happy in his marriage. They argue and they fight all the time. So what's he going to do? Right. He's going to go find someone that that gets him, right? Someone who understands and appreciates him. Someone who's willing to meet his needs, you know? And he's going to commit adultery to get it. And sin is right outside his door, and he's running headfirst towards it, ready to ruin his home and his family, but it doesn't matter, right? Someone needs to stop him. Solomon says that that someone is his friend, right? And here's the wisdom that we can apply when we're ready to sin, or when we get caught in sin. Right? So this is the wisdom that we really need, and it's very simple. Right? We really need good friends. Okay? We really need good friends. Right? We're not talking about good friends that we like to hang out with, right? people who have a lot in common with us, or like the same things we like, or do the same things we do, you know, all of which are okay. But we need people like the one Solomon describes in this chapter. Let's quickly look at three traits of a true friend. Right? This is the kind of person that you want to have in your ear. This is the kind of person you want to have in your face when sin is at your door and temptation is pressing on you. Right? This is the person who's not afraid to grab you by the collar and shake you up, someone to tell you to snap out of it when you're about ready to do something regrettable. Right? But this is also the person that if you do fall into sin, will gently help you up and lovingly hold you up and get you back walking in the spirit. And one thing to remember 
is that these aren't just going to be qualities of a friend that we want to have, but these are going to be qualities of a friend that we want to be. Right? These are qualities of a friend that we want to have and qualities of a friend that we also want to be. So here's number one. Number one, he's not afraid to confront. Okay? He's not afraid to confront. Uh, so this is our passage, the one that we're looking at specifically tonight, Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Right? And it reads, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Right? This man in our chapter, he needs rebuke. Right? He needs open rebuke. He's about to do a terrible thing, but he needs someone with the courage to tell him the truth about what he's about to do, about the sin that's in his heart. Right? A true friend doesn't hide the truth from you. Right? He's going to tell you like it is, even if it hurts. Right? He has no use for flattery, no regard for trying to get on your good side. He doesn't need to try and gain your affection because if you truly count him as a friend, he already has it. Right? A good friend is more concerned with the condition of your soul than the fear of confrontation. So you need someone who's not afraid to confront. And second, a second characteristic of a friend is that he provides good counsel. In Proverbs 27.9, it says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. You know who might be wearing oil and perfume? Maybe an adulteress. So it's almost like Solomon is saying, you know what's better than that? Right? A friend's counsel. Right? Just like oil and perfume are able to uplift the senses, a friend's counsel is able to uplift the soul. Right? It's not just, oh, I feel better after talking to that person, or, you know. You know, it's not just that, right? He, he, the, your friend does, doesn't make you feel better after you speak to them, right? But your soul is uplifted by his counsel, right? He speaks truth and love like it says in Ephesians, right? You are encouraged and strengthened by his godly counsel, right? His words are loving and gentle, yet they're truthful and challenging all at the same time. He's someone that speaks the word of God in your life. And probably the most famous verse in in this chapter, probably the more, one of the more well-known verses in this book, is found in, in this chapter, 27, 17, and it says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Right? And I don't think it's an accident that this verse is found in this chapter. And then lastly, uh, the last quality of a friend, um, that, or the last quality of a good friend that you want to have and that we strive to be is that he's nearby, right? he's close by. Proverbs 27.10, it reads, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother far away. Again, you can kind of picture again what's happening in this chapter, right? We've got someone who's married to a contentious woman. Things are going pretty bad, right? Bad to the point that he's ready and willing to go out and commit adultery. Right. His brother might not be there to stop him or talk some sense into him because, you know, he's living far away. But what this guy does have is he has a friend and a neighbor. Right. He needs this neighbor to come over and stop him from what he's about to do. Right. This neighbor is someone who is willing to stand in front of the door and keep this man from leaving his house. 
right? The neighbor is someone who knows the situation and knows him, but he's also close enough to confront and counsel when sin or calamity is near. And when there's calamity, you're going to need friends who are nearby. Those who are directly involved in your life, those who know you, know the type of trouble or sin that you're in or that you're struggling with. And when something's wrong, they're going to be the ones to know and they'll be the ones to be there to step in. And if you're in our flock groups, if you've been through our flock groups over this summer, right, we've been going through the discipleship book. And one of the first points that Deborah makes about makes is about how our society is trending towards more individualism and isolationism, right? But that's not how we as Christians are meant to live, right? And through our summer series about life in the church, we also know that that's not how we as a church are meant to live either. Proverbs 18, 1 to 2 says this. It says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding but only in revealing his own mind, right? Only a fool would choose to isolate himself, right? This means, though, that you're going to need to let people in your life, right? Let them in your space, let them in your home, right? Let your life be an open book, right? You know when people become members, or you know when people become members of our church, right? They give a little testimony in our church family meetings, right? And one of the things that they often say is that, you know, that as part of this church, they want to be held accountable by their fellow brothers and sisters, and they want to do the same for them, right? That sounds familiar, right? I know probably some of you have probably even have shared something very similar in your testimonies. And hopefully that's something that we can all do for each other, right? But in order to do so, again, we have to let people into our lives, into our homes, so that they can really see what's going on, right? There can't be any Sunday morning or Friday night facades, right? One way to look at holding and being held accountable might look a little something like this. So you guys are familiar with accountants, right? Right, right. For the most part, they prepare and they examine financial records, right? They make sure that the records are accurate and that these records are properly reported to the correct authority. Right, things like your taxes, right? And in order to do so, if they're good, right, they'll go over everything, right? If, you're, if you think about when you do your taxes or if an accountant does your taxes, right, they go over everything, right? Every aspect of your financial history is taken into account from the greatest things to even like the smallest things, right? And they do so to make sure that your taxes are reported properly. That's not too different than when we want people to keep us accountable in our spiritual life. You want someone to pour over every aspect of your life, right? No hidden secrets, everything laid out to bear. So when, as they're examining your life and something doesn't add up, right, they can come and talk to you about it and they can approach you and say, hey, I I noticed this, right? I'm not sure what's kind of going on here, but is everything okay, right? These are the people that we need in our lives we need them to know what's going on, and we need them nearby. So before we move on, um, here are some things to consider. Uh, number one, right, do you truly have good friends? Right? People who care more about your sanctification than what you think of them. 
right? People who care enough about your soul, even if it puts your friendship to the test. Right? People who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Right? People who are willing to wound you with the truth instead of appease you with lies, as our verse says. Right? You also need them, right? If you have, do you have true friends? Are they people that you can go to, and do you trust their counsel? And do you have friends that know what's going on in your life? Right? Are they close enough to know, or are they close enough that when things start to get a little messy, they'll be there? Right? And when you're tempted to sin, and sin is crouching at your door, and you're about to walk right into it, do you have people in your life that will step in and try and stop you? Or if you fall into sin, who will, have, who will be there to pick you up? and set you straight. Right? So if you don't have them, you need them, and you need to find them. Right? And there's plenty of people around you right now. Right? And it doesn't matter if you guys are different. Right? It doesn't matter if you guys are different ages. Right? It doesn't matter if you guys are different backgrounds, if you guys have different hobbies, if you guys are different genders. There's a little worried about putting that one in, but it's okay. Right? It's okay. You guys are all adults. It's fine. You know, lighters, I don't know. This is why I was a little uncomfortable with this, but it's okay, you know? You could do that just, you know, at least a holy distance apart, okay? <laughs> maybe, maybe a Bible distance apart. I should have brought a bigger Bible, but that's okay. <laughs> okay? But what really matters is that they want you to be holy, and you want them to be holy. Okay, so use the time tonight to make some true friends. Okay, and then use the time tonight to be a true friend. And then second, not only do you need good friends, right, but you, but you need to be a good friend. Right? Everything that we're looking for in a friend, right, are you that friend to someone else? Right? We all need each other, and sometimes you're going to fall, sometimes I'm going to fall. Right? We need to be there for each other, and if we stumble, how do we provide correction? Well, Paul gives us the answer, right? and this is going to be uh, our second point, right? instructions for those providing restoration. Uh, so turn to Galatians 6, Galatians 6, 1 through 5. So if you're there, uh, we'll look at, I guess we'll look at five instructions, um, five instruction that Paul, instructions that Paul gives us uh, in the process of restoring a brother who has been caught in sin. And so they'll go like this, and we'll take them in order. Uh, so uh, one or, or letter A will be, uh, we need to be gentle. Okay, we need to be gentle. Um, B, or number two, is to look humbly to yourself. Three, is to bear another's burdens. Four is to test yourself. And then lastly, number five, is to bear your own burdens. So five instructions that uh, Paul gives us uh, when we need to restore a brother. Again, be gentle, look humbly at yourself, bear one another's burdens, test yourself, and bear your own burdens. Okay, so we'll get into the text right now. And uh, so turn, if you're not there already, uh, it's going to be Galatians 6. And all. we'll just read the text as we move along. 
And so verse 1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. Right? Paul starts by saying that if anyone is caught in a trespass, but if you really wanted to, you could say something like when anyone is caught in a trespass, because it's inevitable, right, that everyone, even though we're saved, at some point will sin. James says, the Apostle James says in his epistle, for we all stumble in many ways, right? He says, we all stumble in many ways. He doesn't say you all stumble in many ways. James includes himself in the statement, right? This is the Apostle James, right? Brother of Jesus, leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He says that he also stumbles in many ways, right? At any point, any of us can get caught in a trespass of some kind, Right, the word caught there, it means to be tripped up or overtaken or taken by surprise. And a lot of times, that's what happens when we sin. Right? We might not be looking to sin, but often we get caught off guard. Right? We're not watchful. Right? We're not being watchful, and we succumb to sin. Right? But understand that this process of confronting and restoring only begins uh, when there's actual sin. Right. So what happens when the inevitable happens and we fall into sin? Right. We're not talking about gray areas or personal preferences or even Christian liberties like we learned about earlier. Of course, there's nothing wrong with discussing these things with others and assessing the wisdom regarding these areas, but we're talking about actual sin. Right. So here's a point that we all need to understand is that when someone sins, the action we need to take is to restore. You can ask yourself this. When you see another Christian that has fallen into sin, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? A lot of times, or sometimes, when we see that happening, we might be tempted to judge or to condemn. It's easy sometimes to say to yourself or to think, like, man, what is he doing? Or, you know, how could he do something like that? Or maybe even, well, man, I would never do something like that. Right? Though confrontation, as Jesus says in Matthew 18, is an element in handling a sinning brother, the goal of confrontation is not condemnation. Right? The goal of confrontation is always going to be restoration. Okay? The goal of confrontation is restoration. Instead of thinking, oh, how could he do something like that? We ought to be thinking, hey, my brother tripped and fell. I need to go pick him up. Example is is like this. So let's say you were to go to the doctor, right? A doctor's job isn't just to tell you what's wrong, right? It's his job to heal. So imagine that you went to the doctor because you had maybe a pretty bad fall and your leg is pretty messed up and you're just in a lot of pain, right? And the doctor says to you, it looks like you have a broken leg. Next time, watch where you're going. And then he just sends you home, right? He doesn't set your leg back in place, right? He doesn't put a cast on. He doesn't give you any crutches. He doesn't give you any pain medication, right? That wouldn't happen, right? That shouldn't happen. That 
probably would never happen, right? No doctor would do that. But if all we did in this church was to confront and we didn't try to restore our brother, right, we'd be doing the exact same thing, right? But it's worse because it may be the doctor's job to restore the body, but God has put us in this church so that when a brother sins, he can use us to help restore his soul, right? We're not talking about like a salvific or soteriological restoration, right? That's only from Jesus. We're talking about a sanctifying type of restoration. Well then, what does it mean to restore? Right? What does that word mean? It means to make sufficient or repair or make good again. Right? The term is used by Mark in Mark 119 uh, when the disciples had to mend their nets. Right? The net was broken, or so you know, it can't do what a net is supposed to do when nets catch fish, so they needed to mend it, they needed to fix it. Right? In those days, the word restore was also used as a medical term to set straight a fracture. Right? And for the sinning Christian, he's not able to perform his intended function. Right? If, you've got a bunch of, if you've got a net with a bunch of holes in it, it's not going to catch much fish. Similarly, similarly you know, if someone's leg is broken, you know, he's not really going to be able to walk. And in order for the church to function as it is intended, right, we all must be in working order. If there are some of us who are in need of restoration but haven't been mended or haven't been healed, we as a church or as a church body, we won't be able to function as we should. Right? Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, it says this, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then Hebrews chapter 12, 12 to 13, it says this, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight the paths for your feet so that the limbs, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. One thing that we can consider uh, and we ought to be really thankful for is that we have a God that is in the business of restoring and not replacing. Right? We're very blessed that God wants to restore us instead of replace us. So what does it look like then uh, to restore a fellow brother who has been overtaken by sin? Uh, it's pretty simple, right? We want him to be walking in line with the Spirit. First, we want to make sure that he's able to see his sin, confess his sin and repent, and continue then walking in the Spirit. So who then is responsible for the sinning Christian, right? If we go back to our verse in verse 1, it says, you who are spiritual. So how do we know who Paul has in mind uh, when he says those who are spiritual or you who are spiritual? Well, if we go back just a little bit into chapter 5, he describes the people who are spiritual, right? In verse 22, he, this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So it's pretty simple. Those who are spiritual are those who are walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh. 
Right? Those who are in the Spirit, those who are spiritual, bear the fruit that are consistent with the fruit of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Right? Being spiritual, though, it doesn't necessarily matter how long you've been a Christian or what your status is in the church. Right? It's not just for pastors or elders or leaders. Right? It's just simply those who are obedient to the Spirit, and that should be all of us. So, number one, uh, how do we restore? Uh, number one, or letter A, it's that we ought to be gentle. gentle right? Paul says that we are to do it, we are to restore with a spirit of gentleness. Right? It has the idea of being meek or being humble. Of course, those who are spiritual, who are doing the restoring, Right? They should already be practicing the fruit of the Spirit. So it would be natural then that they would do so in, when they restore, that they would restore in a spirit of love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Right? Not just because that's how you restore, but it's because that's just their nature. That's just their character. Right? They, the way they speak, the way they act, in all aspects of their life, including restoration, right? It's just who they are, right? And you can't be gentle unless you're walking in the spirit, and you can't restore if you're not gentle. Now, this is what John Calvin has to say uh, in his commentary regarding uh, restoring with a spirit of gentleness. He says, that design will never be accomplished by violence or a disposition, of disposition to accuse or by fierceness of manner or language, and consequently, we must display a gentle and meek spirit if we intend to heal our brother, and lest any man should satisfy himself with assuming the outward form, he demands the spirit of meekness, so that for no man is prepared for chastening a brother until he has succeeded in acquiring a gentle spirit. We need to remember that when we restore, it's with a spirit of gentleness. Right? We, make, we need to make sure that we have a caring spirit and not a critical spirit. So that's number one. So first, we need to be gentle. And the next, we need to look humbly at ourselves. Right? And the next part of that verse is uh, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Look at that next instruction. It says, we must look to ourselves. Right? You know that there's always going to be those people out there that, are, that love pointing out the fault and the sin of others. Right? Right? They might feel justified because they're looking out for the purity of the church. Right? And before we get tempted to do the same thing, right? before we start going around every corner of this church looking to catch someone in their sin, Right, consider again what Paul says. He says, when someone sins, you need to look at yourself. We need to be extra careful because, yeah, maybe today my brother was the one who fell. But if I'm not careful, tomorrow it's going to be me. Right? And if we're really concerned about the purity of the church and removing sin, the biggest difference you can make isn't with your brother or sister. Right? You know whose eye has the log in it, right? I mean, it's not theirs. And now, I might not be able to look into your heart, but I can look into mine. 
Right? So just as you, or you are just as susceptible to falling into temptation as your brother, and that alone should cause you to approach a fellow Christian who is in need of restoration, to approach them in a spirit of humility and gentleness. Right? When another brother falls into sin, it's not a time of judgment or condemnation. It's a time of self-reflection. If you guys are familiar with George Whitfield, he was one of the greatest preachers of the Great Awakening. Right? You can think John Edwards. Um, this is uh, the time before the American Revolution, 1730, 1740. Uh, he's perhaps most famous for um, his big voice. And here's uh, just a little story of his life. At one point in his ministry, uh, Whitfield received a vicious letter accusing him of wrongdoing. And his reply was brief and courteous. And this is what he said. He said, I thank you heartily for your letter and for what you and my other enemies are saying against me. I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. Right. The restoration process reminds us of how great of a sinner we each are and how on guard we always must be. Um, the, next, uh, the next topic, we, we won't cover too much. Uh, Stephen had covered this about a month ago, um, but it's still helpful to review since it's part of the restoration process, and that's in verse 2. Right? Bear one another's burdens. And you read, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And the word bear there means to hold up under or to carry a great weight. And if you remember the word burden, uh, it refers to a heavy load, something that is very difficult to carry. Right? So this passage then commands us that we are to come alongside other Christians and help carry their burdens. If you see someone you love struggling to carry something that's obviously heavy, right, you wouldn't walk by and say, whoa, that looks really heavy. Right? You've got your hands full. Good luck managing that. And then you just walk away. Right? No, you, what, what would you do? Or what should you do? Right? You would come by. You would put your hands under whatever it is that they're struggling to carry and help them carry it. For some of us, we struggle with certain temptations and sins, right? And it's a constant battle. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. Maybe there are certain idols that creep into our hearts from time to time. And lifting those things and carrying those things constantly, it'll wear on you, right? It's like this big weight that's over your head that you're trying to carry, but it's so heavy you can only carry it for so long. And after a while... It's just too heavy, right? And even though we might find it hard or awkward, understand that confronting, confronting is easy, okay? But the restoration is hard, right? Part of restoring is coming, again, part of restoring is coming alongside someone who might be struggling maybe with a certain sin. If all we did was confront, we'd merely be pointing out their sin and maybe asking them that they'd ask God for forgiveness. And of course, you know, that's something that we ought to do and we need to do. But if that's all we did, it would be like looking on a brother who is being crushed by this heavy weight and just looking and walking away. But if our heart is set on restoring our brother, 
we would run to him as fast as we could so that we can help lift that burden, burden off him. And when he's ready to stand, we would tell him, I'm going to help carry this with you. We need to look for ways that we can make his load lighter. Right? Because that heavy burden, it's not something that he was meant to bear alone. Right? Sometimes we get tempted to think that, well, you know, that's, that's the pastor's job or someone else will come alongside and help. But we also must realize that this command is for us, all of us as fellow believers. Right? If we have or if we leave a fellow brother or sister in Christ to bear their burden alone, then we become the ones who are disobedient. Romans 15, 14, it says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. It's something that we ought to do, but it's also something that we can do. So what what can we do to help bear our brother's burden? Remember the qualities of a friend that we ought to have in Proverbs 27? Right? Those are the qualities of a friend that we also ought to be, right? So we can also, uh, we can also pray for them, right? We can check in, from them, uh, check in on them from time to time, uh, engage in accountability, right? Make sure that they're involved in the church. Right? Make sure that, you know, all the different one another's uh, that are in Scripture and that we've been learning over uh, these past few months over the summer, right? Make sure that we're practicing them on him, but also make sure that he's practicing them on us. And I'm sure you can think of lots of other ways, too, how we can help bear one another's burdens. But sin and temptation, those aren't the only burdens we bear. Paul doesn't really specify in this passage exactly what type of burden he's referring to. And there's lots of us in this church that are carrying very heavy burdens, very heavy trials of all different kinds. So if you see someone carrying a heavy load, right, you need to make sure you stop and you lend them your hand. And Stephen walked us through uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it says there, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And back to our Galatians passage, uh, the second part of verse 2, it says that by bearing one another's burdens, we're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. Right, so what, what is the law of Christ? Right, if we look around the New Testament, we can come up with a pretty good idea of what he might be referring to. Right, if we look up just one chapter over in Galatians 5, it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything but faith working through love. And then a couple verses down, it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in John 15, um, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you can conclude pretty convincingly that the law of Christ Paul is speaking of is simply love. Right? You know a lot of people, even Christians, might have a very negative view of confrontation in the church. Right? They feel like confrontation in the church is unloving. Right? Some people probably feel this way because maybe that's how they've had people approach them when they've been confronted about their sin. Right? They've been confronted in an unloving way, a, lo- a way that was harsh and not gentle like Paul prescribes. And they were never given 
or they never experienced the love and restoration from the body of Christ that should have been provided to them because no one cared enough to bear their burden. And that's not how a church should be. So let's not be that kind of church. So if you actually fulfill the process of gentle restoration, which includes bearing one another's burdens, right? we're actually showing the love for one another that Christ has commanded us to do. The problem is that we don't always do it. Right? And one of the reasons that we don't always do it is in verse 3. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Right? A, couple ways, a couple other ways to say this is don't look down on others or don't think too highly of yourself. One of the reasons maybe why we don't aim to restore a fallen brother is because if you're standing next to someone that's fallen, it makes you look a lot taller. Next to him, you might seem a lot godlier because you're not the one that fell into sin. You're not the one that got tripped up. We may start to compare ourselves with others, and it makes us feel better. Maybe I'm not that great, but at least I'm not like that guy. Right? Or I'm not that bad, because look at that. Look at that person. Oh, look what, look what he or she did. Right? I, I wouldn't do that. Right? That's an attitude of pride, which prevents us from wanting to bear the burdens of others because we're just simply too good for it. Right? As, if, as if we were too good to get our hands dirty and lift up other people's burdens. Right? It's an attitude of superiority that thinks, hey, I'm, I'm too mature of a Christian to get involved in that. I'm too, I'm too good to get involved in those burdens. Right? I'm too busy doing more important things for God than that. Right? If Paul says if that's your attitude, then you're fooling yourself. Right? And then next, uh, number four, uh, test yourself. Test yourself. Number four verse is test yourself. And this is verse four. But everyone must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. So don't compare yourself to others. Right? It's interesting, right, that the manner in which Paul addresses sin in the church or restoration in the church, right? when another brother sins, these are all things that we're supposed to do, not what he's supposed to do. And a lot of what we should be doing uh, in the process of restoring is a lot of serious self-reflecting. Right, as part of this self-reflecting, uh, it's to examine your own work. Right? This word examine is used in other places in the New Testament, and it's sometimes translated as test. Right? The pictures want the pictures uh, the testing of metals for purity. Right? Test whether your work is genuine, uh, whether it's pure. First right? Corinthians chapter three says this. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which has been built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burnt up or burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So as we're examining our lives, we're not being tested against what someone else does. Right? We're not comparing our lives to each other 
so that we can say, well, you know, at least I'm better than this guy, or at least I'm better than that guy. Right? Our standard is the Bible, right? Our standard is scripture, and that's what we ought to test ourselves against. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. He says, true self-examination is not merely taking one's spiritual pulse beat on a regular basis, but rather submitting one's thoughts, attitudes, and actions to the will of God and the mind of Christ revealed in Holy Scripture. Right? And understand that everything that you are, all your actions, all your attitudes are laid bare and nothing is hidden from God's sight, as it says in Hebrews. And in his message to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says this in Revelation. He says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. So you can fool us, right? It's not that hard, right? You can play the part of someone who's doing great work in the church, right? You can have the praise of man, the praise of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But in the process of restoring a brother, we need to weigh not just what we do, but the heart and attitude in which we do it. Was any of it done out of our own selfish gain, for our own ambition, or out of our own motivation? Um, if it is, right, God knows it. And that's work that's just going to get burnt up. Right? It's just going to be wood, hay, and straw. It's not going to pass the test. But if it is tested, and it's tested to be something like gold and silver, then that's worth, as Paul says, that's something that's worth boasting about. Right? And it's not because, of, it's our, not because it's our, of our own doing. Right? We know that what we did was only made possible because of the work that Christ has done in us. As it says later in verse 14 of Galatians 6, Paul says that we can boast in the cross of Jesus Christ through which we are new creatures. Right? It's through the cross that we have our ultimate restoration and only because of the cross we can be restored to perform our intended function Right? And that's to glorify him. And lastly, um, number five, yeah, verse five, it says, each one will bear his own load. Right? And if you've been following along, this would, count, this would sound kind of odd, right? I mean, he just said that we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. So now why is he saying we should carry our own loads? And that's a good question to ask because it does sound like you know, he's providing us with two contradictory statements. But if we examine it a little more closely, you can see that even in our translations, that in verse 2, the word there is burden, right? Remember, it means like a heavy weight, something more than you can carry. But here in verse 5, the word is load. It refers to a more personal type of load. Uh, it was used to describe like the weight of a soldier's backpack. All right, so really, Paul is actually talking about two different things. Um, that we should be carrying, right? We all have heavy burdens, right? Burdens that we need each other to help carry. But we also have what you can say are personal loads, right? Things that we should carry on our own, right? They may simply, you know, what is, what, what's the load, right? What, what, what should we be carrying? And it could just simply mean that it refers to our own spiritual duties or responsibilities, uh, things like our spiritual disciplines, right? Things that really no one can really do for us, right? Our time in the word, our time in prayer, our giving, you know, our worship, 
right? We're responsible for carrying those things on our own. Right? Sure, like we can encourage one another to carry each other's load, but you know, ultimately, we're the ones responsible for it. And so, uh, we'll just conclude with this. Um, the question to ask yourself is, are you spiritual? Right? If you're not, right, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit and you say, I find myself lacking, right? I'm not spiritual. Well, you need to be, right? And you need to be because we need you to be, right? This fellowship needs you. This church needs you, right? We all need to be confronted and restored, and we need you and we need each other to do it, right? When the time comes and one of us is being crushed under the weight of our own burdens, right? We need you to be gentle enough and humble enough to come alongside and help us carry that burden. And if you're thinking to yourself, maybe, you know, I don't know if, maybe I don't know if I have these people in my life that would be willing to do this, right? Those good friends that are willing to come and confront and restore me, well, that's okay, right? Because as we said earlier, right, those people that you need, they're all right here in this room and they're all in this church. If you need a friend, you just need to find one. You know? But first, be one. Okay, and with that, we'll close. So um, let's pray. Um, dear Lord, we just um, thank you for your word and how uh, it encourages and challenges us. And we come um, with this command that you have for us to confront and restore, and we know that it's not easy. We know that it's difficult, and in our sinfulness, it's not something that we would want to do. But Lord, give us a, a love for yourself and a love for one another, that no matter how difficult, that we would love one another enough, that we would care to come and confront and restore one another. So we just thank you, and we just thank you for your word, and may it change us all. We just thank you, in your son's name we pray. Amen.